of the Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, posted on June 24th, 2010. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast... Today, the modern theory of the early universe, we all know, is that in the first squillionth of a second, the universe was half matter, half antimatter. And then gradually, matter wins out, so to speak, and we end up with very much less antimatter. Now, by that light, Dirac conceived half the early universe in his head. That's physicist and writer Graham Farmelow. He's the author of the acclaimed biography, The Strangest Man, the story of legendary theoretical physicist Paul Dirac. Farmelow is a senior research fellow at London's Science Museum and is adjunct professor of physics at Northeastern University here in the U.S. His book has won the 2010 Costa Biography Award and the Los Angeles Times Book Prize in the science and technology category. Farmelow is spending the summer doing research at the Institute for Advanced study at Princeton, he was kind enough to drop by the Scientific American offices on June 18th to talk about Dirac. Here's part one. Who was Dirac? Paul Dirac was the greatest scientist produced by Britain in the 20th century and one of the greatest scientists of the 20th century. Uh, I have to say, though, he's one of the least well-known I mean, uh, on his 70th birthday, C.P. Snow said of uh, Dirac that he was the greatest living Englishman, Churchill having died. Uh, and the audience were nonplussed because most of them had never heard of him. So he is very much an anonymous figure outside that of at the community of theoretical physics. Even an undergraduate taking a, a modern physics course can probably go through that course today without hearing Dirac's name mentioned. Yes, I think that's probably true. Uh, they, they'd probably use some of his, the terms he invented, things like eigenfunction and various things like that, and use some of his mathematics. For example, the, the, the equation that we regard as, if you like, the central driving equation of quantum theory, which we call Schrodinger's equation, which governs the behavior of uh, subatomic uh, uh, matter. Um, the, the, the version of that that is fully dependent on time Right, which is which most undergraduates will do in their course. That was done independently by Dirac as well, but it was Schrödinger who got the full credit for it uh, because he was the person who came up with the first equation and then generalized it. But or it, it's Salam, who one of Dirac's students, said that virtually everything in quantum uh, quantum mechanics, apart from the uh, the uh, very beginning of, of, of Schrodinger and Heisenberg, virtually everything Dirac ha did independently, he, he thought through in his own mind. I mean, he really was one of the co-inventors of the subject. And what's really amazing is this work was done primarily on his own. Yes. At a desk yeah. with a pencil and paper. That's right. That's right. He was the classic loner. Make no mistake. Uh, he he needed other people in the sense that all scientists need them, you know, to verify his 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 logic, to pick him up when he made slips and what have you. Like all scientists need that. But he 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 hated working in teams. He, as you rightly say, sat at this cheap school desk in his rooms at at, at St John's College in Cambridge, and he worked alone and that's how he wanted to do it didn't want to partake in all these debates the Bohr Einstein debates and all this other stuff here he just wanted to be on his own and but he loved Bohr and he, he, and he Bohr. revered Einstein absolutely he thought Bohr was the most intelligent person he'd ever met he thought Einstein was preeminently the greatest scientist of the 20th century never changed his mind on that thought that general relativity not quantum mechanics was the greatest theory conceived in the 20th century and he was a 
a stylist. He was almost as much of an artist yes. as a scientist. I agree with that. I agree. Uh, without in any way uh, um, undermining the contributions of Schrodinger, Heisenberg, Pauli and the others, Dirac's work has a unique beauty to it, a unique logical uh, force and concision, a beauty of notation, an elegance of, of conception. I mean, I love Freeman Dyson's phrase. I love the phrase Freeman used, which he coined right in front of me at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. I remember him saying it to me, that what made Dirac's contribution special was that more than anybody else, his contributions were like perfectly carved marble statues falling from the sky. And I think that's a great phrase. If you look at the other other people, Great, great physicists, without a doubt. But if you look at their contributions, they somehow look tentative. They look uh, uh, somewhat messy. Right? But Dirac, you can read them today. They look completely modern, and particularly in his later part of his career. I mean, you think the stuff that he was doing, for example, on the magnetic monopole, still not verified. That's an absolutely beautiful piece of science, fundamental today in the way that quantum, uh, uh, advanced quantum field theory is done. But it also, this search for an aesthetic ideal also drove him. It, yes. it was part of his parameters for success. Well, I, I, I think what you say is very reasonable. In, in the book, though, I question whether that was actually the case when he was, when he was a young man. He certainly had that, as he put it, like a religion. As an elderly man, that's not that's not in doubt. Right, but you think that might be a little bit of revisionist history yes, exactly. on his part. Exactly. I, uh, uh, if you look, there's very few mentions of beauty, which became his obsession when he was young. He did mention it though. In a in a talk he gave as a graduate student, he actually inserts the word beauty when talking about Einstein's general theory of relativity, the theory of gravity, and he puts that in. So he was thinking about it. And in the book, I trace this back to his school, uh, his school days in. Bristol, where uh, Sir Henry Cole and others, Henry Cole invent, uh, invented the Christmas card in Britain, the first director of the VNA. He wanted beauty to be part of the education of young people. So Dirac was actually saturated in it. And it became, as, as you rightly say, Steve, a big part of his approach to, uh, uh, approach to physics. But we, uh, it, there's no, in my opinion, there's no evidence that when he was co-discovering quantum mechanics, that he was driven by beauty in the way, as you rightly say, that he, 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 uh, if you like, retro-interpreted his activities later on. Yeah, later in life, he actually advises people to go for the beauty in their in their formulations oh, over so. experimental verification. Yeah, he wrote that in Scientific American. In 1963. Yeah, that was the article where he came out of the of the closet of the theoretician, if you can call it that, and wrote his first popular article. It was based on uh, on lectures he gave at Yeshiva, not not far away from here, and uh, and it, that those two phrases come up in that article, right? That one is that God appears to be a very fine pure mathematician uh, he got that actually that, that line from james jeans way back in the back in 1930 i suspect he, he'd forgotten he got it from there but jeans came out with that beautiful line but he also said uh, and the phrase that you just mentioned there that it is more important for a theory to uh, to be mathematically beautiful than for it to agree with experiment and he absolutely stood by by that statement and you'll know that to some degree uh, that is if you like uh, a, a credo of the perhaps the modern string theorist who invests a great deal in the mathematical elegance of the theory right even though there's no at the moment any direct 
evidence to, to, to verify it. So there's a lot of faith there that there is going to come good in the end. Let's go back to his actual contributions to physics. Mm. If if you think it's even possible, can we try to explain to uh, uh, people who might not be all that familiar with? I mean, Schrodinger they've they've heard of because mm. of his cat, and Heisenberg <laughs> they've heard of because hey, I tell of you, the... Dirac's daughter told me that they often visited the Schrodingers, and the one thing they didn't have was a cat. Well, <laughs> they, they might have had a cat. <laughs> I know. I love that remembrance of Monica, but sorry, I, I digress. You know, they might have had an infinite number of dead cats. Yes, yes that's very true. So yes. we, we can't know for sure, yeah, but there was no visible evidence of a cat. So we have uh, Heisenberg is famous uh, in in general parlance. Most people have heard of the uncertainty, <laughs> yeah, uncertainty principle, principle, even if they don't know what it is. That's true. Dirac... What actually was it that he did that was such an important contribution <clears throat> to the the building of the edifice of quantum mechanics? All right. Well, lots of things, but perhaps I can give the greatest hits. As as you rightly say, there were uh, there be, began two theories of of, of quantum mechanics: of the Schrödinger one, where you look at things like electrons and uh, and uh, subatomic matter in terms of waves. You look at their their behavior in terms of waves. There's also the first one that came out was Heisenberg's, and he was looking at things in terms of matrices, uh, arrays of square numbers, complicated stuff. And even Einstein, that gave him the heebie-jeebies. I mean, you know, can it, nature really be this complicated? So you have what looks like two completely different approaches to that theory. So in, in a sense, you have the same reality, but you're representing it by, if you like, there's Japanese and there's, uh, uh, I don't know, English, you might say, right? So you've got things that look very different, but they're representation of the same reality. Now, after Dirac got his PhD, the first PhD in quantum mechanics, uh, and after making a fundamental contribution that's the basis of microelectronics, we'll pass over that, uh, he, when he went to Bohr's Institute, where Bohr called Dirac the strangest man who ever visited that institute, uh, what Dirac did was set up a theory that enabled you to go from one representation to the other, from Heisenberg's to Schrodinger's and back. Right. And he called that theory his darling. And it was his favorite piece of work because he actually set out to do it. Right. He thought these two things were pretty much the same and he set out to do it and he did it. And he was very, very proud of that. Now, he the next thing he did, which uh, I was he was the one of the co-inventors of quantum field theory. Now, we all know about gravitational fields. We all we have an intuitive feel for, you know, the apple falling uh, in, in Newton's garden, in a, pulled by, gravitation, by a gravitational field. We know about electrical magnetic fields. What Dirac was one of the first to do, independently of other people, was to show that the idea of that field could be quantized. Right? You could introduce the quantum, the granular aspect to the, the, the concept of the field. So he was one of the inventors of the the fundamental approach that, that physicists use to understanding reality now. Now, but the biggest thing of all, the biggest thing of all that he's most famous for is his famous equation, named after him the Dirac equation. Now, why is that famous? Well, what it is, it's an equation for the electron, the first fundamental material particle to be discovered. Now, what made that equation so special? Well, the first quantum theory, the ones we've just been talking about, was had to be flawed. 
because it was not consistent with Einstein's special theory of relativity, Einstein's theory of space and time that modified the Newtonian conception of the thing. And Einstein basically had this set of rules set out in special relativity that that governed uh, the, the, the way that a, that a theory must behave if it's to be in conformity with nature. The problem was that quantum theory did not conform to that theory. What Dirac did, he married special relativity and quantum mechanics. And he, fir- he was the first person to set out for the electron a theory that was consistent with relativity and quantum mechanics. And he produced a beautiful, and in Frank Wilczek's work, an achingly beautiful equation of the electron that you can write on the palm of your hand. Now, that's one thing. The, the reason why that was seen as a miracle at the time, and you can trot out all the cliches of rabbits coming out of hats and what have you, was that, first of all, Dirac did it on his own. There were dozens of people trying to do the same thing and flailing around in a very inelegant way. Dirac did it in, in such a way that he could announce that equation to his German competitors on four lines at the end of a letter, driving one of them into a, into a depression that lasted years. Now, what that equation did was something remarkable. The electron we physicists knew had spin. You can think of it very vaguely, inaccurately, but vaguely as like the Earth spinning on its axis. That had been observed a few years before, but nobody understood what that meant. Spin drops out naturally, like a golden egg, so to speak, from the Dirac equation. Likewise, the magnetism of the electron also drops out of that equation. So not only do you have an equation that makes... uh, quantum mechanics, relativistic, so to speak, but you instantly have an explanation for the spin and the magnetism of the electron. So that's why it was seen as a miracle. Then, perhaps even greater, even greater than that, he used that equation, right, uh, uh, which had its flaws, but he overcame those flaws, and in what Heisenberg described as perhaps the greatest leap forward in 20th century physics, he deduced purely from a mathematical point of view, not from experiment, he deduced the existence of the anti-electron, the first example of what we now call antimatter, the flip side of matter, if you will. There were these negative energies associated with his view of the electron, yeah. and other people thought that those must be nonsensical. Yeah, exactly. And he stuck to his guns and said, no, somehow this is real. And yes. he came up with an idea of a of a hole in the negative sea and it, it implied these antiparticles. That's right. That's right. Uh, the, the paper that where he comes up with this, right, which was a 1931 paper, right, which is an absolutely sublime piece of work, I might say set against the most terrible domestic privilege, parents throwing things at each other, dreadful domestic turmoil back in, in Bristol. But out of this tragedy of, of, that was his private life came this uh, this uh, if you uh, this foreseeing of of the whole subject of antimatter which is why heisenberg praised it so highly it's just worth saying just to give a sense of the grandeur of dirac's intellect here today the modern theory of the early universe we all know is that in the first squillionth of a second the universe was half matter half antimatter and then gradually matter wins out, so to speak, and we end up with very much less antimatter. Now, by that light, Dirac conceived half the early universe in his head. <laughs> I mean, it is an extraordinary thing that he, that, that he did. 
with the other half being there already. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> so poets he had license, the whole thing. But it was uh, – but Heisenberg said this changed everything, right? You know, now, of course, it's routine. They, in accelerators, in, pot, uh, in PET scanners, we use this stuff, right? But it was Dirac's mathematical imagination. That's the key thing. No experimenter came along and said, hey, Paul, I've got this thing here. What do you think this is? Rather, this came out of his mathematical imagination. I think that's such an important uh, point about him. And the PET scan is positron emission tomography, tomography. and the positron is the anti-particle to... The electron. That's right. And, and that's we, used to image people's brains. It now. is. You look at the electron-positron annihilation in, in the body, and from that you can image what's going on inside the body without opening it, opening it up. And, of course, in, in, in probing the fundamental laws of nature, we use matter-antimatter collisions and, uh, and study them. So it's a, it's a subject of enormous utility. And he did all this by the time he was... Well, he uh, by the time uh, th that antimatter was, if you like, verified... Right. And that's what won him um, uh, the Nobel Prize when he was, what, uh, 30, 31 years old, uh, just over 31. Uh, he, uh, he, he, uh, he, he was he was then seen as perhaps the, the, the world's leading quantum theorist. And when Einstein came to the States in 1933 uh, to uh, begin at the Institute for Advanced Study in, in Princeton, right, the first person he wanted on the faculty with him was Paul Dirac. And he is, in some ways, the antithesis of Einstein. Einstein is this this media celebrity, the the picture of the disheveled genius. Mm. And other than the fact that they both did some seminal work alone, can I disagree with you for the yeah, first sure. point there? Uh, uh, I, 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 that's that's one way in which they were similar. Dirac's wife said that her husband was the second worst dressed man in the world, beaten only by Einstein. Well, because his suits were shabby. <laughs> right. yes. But he always did wear a jacket and tie. Yes, you're, it was you're the right. Same jacket and tie. It, it just it was the same one for thirty years. That's right. But <laughs> right, he bought an overcoat and uh, wore it for the next forty years. He did it just up the road here. Uh, in Lord and Taylor, I think it was. <laughs> right, I've yeah, and he was still you. wearing it in Tallahassee just before he died. It probably hadn't been cleaned. <laughs> on, the, on the colder days in Tallahassee. Yes. So you mentioned that Bohr referred to him as the strangest man who yes. had ever come through his lab, and that's the title of the book. Yeah. Let's get into some some yeah. of the the roots of his strangeness sure. and maybe the diagnosis of mm, his strangeness. Sure. Where do you begin? Every physicist, right, uh, every PhD physicist at least, uh, n uh, ha has to know about Dirac stories. And these are stories that tend to illustrate uh, a very, very singular cast of mind, rectilinear uh, in thought, uh, very, very literal minded, uh, uh, great taciturnity, great un unwillingness to speak. I mean, so literal-minded that right. when his wife says, what would you ever do if I left you, a th you know, a threat that she's going to what would divorce you say? him. What would you say? What would you say? Right. What would you say if I left you? And his response is, I would say goodbye, dear. Yes, that's right. That's right. Incidentally, these things are always accompanied. You, you tell the story quite accurately. There was always a po the Dirac pause. And it lasted, incidentally, up to minutes. Right? Heisenberg said 20 minutes at a point. So he would be going through... Right, a kind of many worlds histories, all the different ways of answering the question before he settled on the one that he. Uh, and as you rightly say, Steve, there he was. He thought there for twenty seconds before before the uh, before the logical answer, which is he would say goodbye, dear. The best example of the of, of the, the Dirac story was occurred in the States. I think it was the first time it occurred was nineteen twenty nine, when I, I think it was his first visit to the United States. 
and uh, he was on touring the uh, Midwest. And th- th- this, uh, uh, when I began writing this biography, I did not believe this story, I have to say. And that's true of many Dirac stories, incidentally, that they transcend belief, many of them. And in this lecture, uh, uh, Dirac, who t- was a very, very fluent, fluent speaker, uh, the, the chair of the, of the uh, discussion turned to him and, and said, uh, after your lecture, Professor Dirac, would you take questions? And Dirac said, yes. And this guy at the back uh, puts his hand up and said, Professor Dirac, wonderful lecture. Uh, I didn't understand the equation on the top right hand of the blackboard. In this Dirac, silence. total silence. Total silence. I, after half a minute, a minute, chairman, everybody's getting very antsy. And the chairman turns to Dirac and said, would you like to answer the question? And, and Dirac said, it wasn't a question, it was a comment. Right. This really sums And up. he said that more than once. His great friend, Le- Leopold Halpern, who very, very kindly gave me hours of his time, just before he died, one of my outstanding questions was, did you ever ask Dirac about that? And he said, yes, I did. Right. And Dirac said, yes. Why is it funny? So let's get back to Dirac's oddness and where it might have come from. Yes. OK. Well, for a regular person, the most striking thing about Dirac was his taciturnity. He was ex- very, very happy to go for days, even weeks, even among his family, without speaking. Now, it's a bef- incidentally, there are people who will tell you, and they're right, that he would, in certain circumstances, talk very fluently. In normal circumstances, he was very, very quiet. And he knew this. He collected in his papers accounts of people who thought this was hilarious. Right, so he knew that other people knew that he was a, a regarded as a strange person. He knew that. And I don't think he was offended by that, but he was very aware that he was different from other people. And he put this down uh, to his extraordinary upbringing. This was an R-rated upbringing by his account. He was one of three children of uh, of a couple in Bristol, England. His father was Swiss. His mother was uh, a librarian in the Bristol City Library. They had the most extraordinary uh, family environment. In particular, they hardly ever had people come into the house for social reasons. They were basically excluded. Very few exceptions. They were just in there, in that house, in that hot house. And his father would drive them on because he would only speak to his children in French. At mealtimes, this is the really dramatic part of the thing, at least from, from the outside, something that Dirac told many close friends about, always in the same words, was that at mealtimes, the family would split into two. His mother would in, be in the kitchen with his sister, Betty, and his brother, Felix. His father would sit with Paul Dirac in the front room. In the kitchen, they were speaking only English. In the front room, his father would only speak to Paul in French. In fact, later on, Dirac apparently told a reporter, a reporter noted that Dirac as a young boy thought that men spoke French and women spoke English. I mean, that's how extraordinary, it it, it transcends belief, but that is a a, a part of a newspaper document at the time. And young young Paul would often get sick at dinner from the stress. Well, he, he, he always had stomach problems. Uh, and like any other child, he wanted to go to the toilet. Right? Dinner, everyone does that, of course, at the dinner table. Now, his father had this rule that any error at all in French would be punished by denying Paul his next wish. So you can imagine what happened at that dinner table. Now, it sounds 
beyond belief. His wife said in letters that exist in Oxford, I've read them myself, that this was happening, she says, every day. Being sick over his food. I mean, it's just appalling. Now, I personally, I'm not prepared to take that because I think uh, as, as literal truth, because she, uh, his wife was prepared, in my experience, prepared to exaggerate. But I'm quite certain that it was quite horrendous what was going on at that. And Dirac said, this is the nub of the point, that he was so scared of making these errors that he thought it was better to stay silent. And Dirac confessed late in life that he had he hated his father. He did. He loathed him. He used that word. And yet he saved something that his father gave him. Was it a pen? I forgot. There was a, there was something in the book. Uh, no, he, what, what he, did, he did keep pictures of his father. He wouldn't have any pictures of his father in the house. He wouldn't have French spoken in the house. All right. But he did. Uh, he did privately acknowledge, although he did hate him. You're quite right that he, it was his father who was driving him. Right. Uh, not only to learn French, which as I said, he hated to speak, but uh, uh, he dr was driving him as a student to take work very, very seriously. Right. And one of the pitiable things is his father kept this little book with P on the front. He was desperately trying to follow the career of his superstar son. Right. And his son evidently would not even speak to his father. And later there's this very sad, touching anecdote about the father attending quantum mechanics yeah. lectures mm -hmm. by another physicist to try to understand what Paul was actually up to. That's quite right. That's right. And he, and he said, well, why don't you ask Paul? He said, my son doesn't speak to me. That's quite right. I might say that that the uh, for amateur Freudians, uh, uh, the, the the death of his father is extraordinary because when, when he, he he was cabled when he was in the Soviet Union, which he was a lot because he had a fascinating, he was a fa fascinated with Stalin and the and his project, and he was out there a lot with his with his Soviet uh, friends and colleagues. He heard about his father was uh, that he's dying. This was uh, what nineteen thirty six, and he flew home. Uh, so, so he must have kept something about it. Well, perhaps he wanted to be with his mother, but he flew home and he missed he missed his uh, father there. Went to the funeral, right? Incidentally, more people attended Dirac's father's funeral than attended Dirac's funeral because he was a big civic figure, very well known, effective school teacher, right? When uh, he came back to that, he came back from the funeral, and the handwriting Dirac used in the letter to his girlfriend was the biggest handwriting he's ever used in his life. I've seen it. I held the letter in my hand. Within 10 days, Dirac had ascended the tallest peak in Europe, Mount Elbrus, and he never climbed a peak as high as that again. So there was something that had been liberated oh, in him. I, I feel much freer now. I'm my own man. Words to that effect. He wrote those words and I've seen the letter. He really, that this man who was seen as one of the greatest physicists in the world, bar none, Right, we fell under the heel of his father right to the end. Toward the end of the book, you start to talk about, and it's a very dicey proposition, mm. but but uh, an actual diagnosis of mm -hmm. of either autism or Asperger's mm -hmm. syndrome mm -hmm. for Dirac. Mm -hmm. And why don't you? Talk about what you think about. Well, I that. have to say that uh, I certainly didn't begin the book thinking about this at all, but it occurred to me when you've got someone of, of Dirac singularity as a person right that you, you have to at least look from a modern sensibility of the possibility that he was autistic and what I decided to do was I spoke to experts in the subject I 
consulted with them about what the definition of autism is, right? And if you look at that definition, and you'll 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 know aspects of it. You know this uh, the the, uh, the uh, literal uh, uh, very narrow mindedness, the unwillingness to speak, especially when as a child. Uh, there's there's several aspects to it that are very well known now. Every single one of those characteristics is fulfilled by Dirac and in spades, and that's why uh, I believe that it was it's uh, it would be in my opinion evasive not to uh, come out and say that in my opinion he was uh, uh, he was very likely autistic i think he was definitely autistic but that said of course he's dead and of course you can never be absolutely certain and i have to say to be absolutely meticulous about it for someone to be diagnosed for certain of autism, you have to be sure that they had these characteristics as a young child. And we don't have enough documentation to do that. So there is a logical loophole there. But I think it's very important to, to, to say this because I don't think Dirac had a choice about that uh, that behaviour. I, I think the stuff about him driving, being driven into, it, into himself by his father, I don't buy that at all. So, I mean, it has an import that it's not just a frivolous label that one puts on it. So... You think that he was autistic mm-hmm. to begin with, and then the family environment just sort of was overlaid on on that situation. Yes, yes. I mean, one of the things that no, is very noticeable uh, about Dirac is uh, his his uh, his extreme lack of empathy. Right now, of course, there are in, in like in every other psychological patient, you could always find exceptions, and I can give them of right. But mostly, he was very, very uh, devoid of empathy. If sometimes even for his own family. Now, let me give you an example of this. Something that again beggar belief when I read it. The the abiding tragedy of Dirac's life, if you leave aside his father, although this is connected, was that he had this young brother, excuse me, elder brother. Uh, whom he followed around. He followed him to study engineering, a very important part of Dirac's sensibility. He was trained as an engineer, not a mathematician, not a physicist. And he followed Felix to university. And they were very close as brothers. And they they diverged. When they were in their teenage years, uh, one, many reasons for this, probably one obvious one, is that Dirac, Paul Dirac was a superstar. Felix was someone who struggled to get a degree. So you can imagine there's all sorts of fraternal tensions going on there. Felix desperately wanted to be a doctor and was forced by his father into this, uh, into a, a rather uh, an ordinary career as a moderately successful draftsman. When Dirac was just coming up to the end of his PhD, this is in March 1925, when he instantly wasn't speaking to his brother. He was actually walking on, he would walk on different sides of the street to avoid him. He got this letter from his auntie Nell saying that his brother had killed himself. Felix had been found under a holly bush and had taken potassium cyanide and killed himself. Now Dirac never spoke about this subject extensively to the best of my mind. He certainly didn't speak to his wife. He didn't even speak to his daughters except for one moment when he opened a tin, showed a little tobacco tin, showed them the picture of his brother, shut it, and never said anything else. So I think it's very reasonable to say this was an extraordinary trauma in his life. Do you know what he did, though, Steve? Uh, he said, right, and an and, and authenticated quote, right, that it was only that tragedy that revealed to him that parents were supposed to love their children. Wow. And I say to you, I, when I looked at that, I thought, this is unbelievable. This guy had been around 
what, 23 years, and he said in a completely calm way that until then he didn't know that parents were supposed to love their children. I mean, how about that? And much later in life, he talks about uh, the fact that it, it was probably very difficult for Felix to have a younger brother who yeah. so outshone him. Yes. But it's said with absolutely no feeling about it, it, just as a fact. No, that's right. That's right. I mean, as a biographer, when you, when you write about Dirac, you, you, it, it's complicated because this, this character is, is crying out for interpretation. Right. And you have to do that as a biographer. But I think you have to be clear about what is fact and what is interpretation. I've tried very hard to do that in, in my book. Yeah. And you're very successful. And, and the, the, the real paradox, which I'm, I'm going to give away the end of the book, the, real, <laughs> the very last lines of the book are about how here's this man who is virtually incapable of emotion, but one has to categorize his scientific philosophy as being one in which emotion, your aesthetic uh, appreciation, is your principal guiding factor. He was a physicist of feeling. That's absolutely right. And he said that if a physicist did not have that feeling about the beauty of theoretical physics, then he or she is in the wrong job. He felt that strongly. Graham Farmelow's award-winning biography of Paul Dirac is titled The Strangest Man. We'll be back with part two. Meanwhile, get your science news at www.scientificamerican.com where you can check out the in-depth report on personalized medicine in the genomic era. Follow us on Twitter where you'll get a tweet every time a new article hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. And Graham Farmelow is well worth following on Twitter. His Twitter name is Graham Farmelow. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Yes.